So um, as we get going today, it's a real joy for me to stand here and to share God's Word. It's a real joy to stand at this point as we lean into the year ahead and to look at what's to come. Uh, And it's with a real sense of anticipation that I'm looking forward to the year ahead, that God would come and build on what He's been doing in our midst, that it's not a new year and a new beginning and a new start with everything starting from the base up, but God continues to build on what He's doing and what He has been doing through the ages. And so as we come and we look at ESCOM and the fact that we don't have electricity now, don't get me wrong, I don't think it's right, but it's not the end of the world. That's not the end of the world, really. We'll work around it. We'll make a plan. And uh, as we're going to see through the course of this morning, our minds should be on other things. Our minds should be on the things above. And so we're going to um, journey this morning through the book or um, the first chapter of 1 Peter that Kaz just read. And I'm going to do a broad overview. I want to talk... Um, about a couple of things. I want to talk about the last Inca emperor. I want to talk about a lady with no home. And I want to talk about girding the loins of your mind. And as we jump into that and get going, I was reminded in preparation for today and for this word, just of something that happened a couple of years back with my kids. Uh, And so my kids have grown up loving fancy dress and dressing up as princesses. And uh, they had this beautiful little light blue shimmering fancy dress dress that was a fashioned after Princess Elsa from the Frozen movies. And so they'd wake up in the morning, they'd put it on, they'd go have breakfast with this little dress on, they would go jump in muddy puddles with this dress on, they'd go and ride their bikes with this dress on, and then at night they'd go to bed with this dress on. Uh, And so it was incredibly precious to them, but one thing that happened that gave me a burning feeling was them with this beautiful shimmering blue dress with this, uh, I don't know if it's a veil or a train or a roby thing that's kind of flowing in the back there. And as they ride in, you know, those little plastic push bikes as they're going around, next thing you see, <coughs> as the veil or the train or whatever it is gets caught in the axle of the, and they're like trying to go, but they, <coughs> and you come there and I'm getting the burning feeling because of, this shouldn't happen and I come and I try and yank this thing out and as I pull it out it rips and it's full of grease and anyway that night there they are holding the greasy torn veil as they fall asleep in bed and so this is pertinent to something you're going to see in a moment but uh, I'm going to come back to it in a second but the context of 1 Peter is this is that it's the Apostle Peter who is in Rome decades after the death of Jesus writing to the church in Asia Minor. Uh, it's now, uh, the church has grown, it's established, and it's still growing, and it's growing rapidly, but these believers in Asia Minor are Gentile believers. They're non-Jewish believers that are isolated in this region of the world, and they're being persecuted by the Roman Empire, and Peter, who is in Rome, is now writing a circular letter, which means this letter would go from church to church as an encouragement to the people there. And he writes in the introduction that we read a moment ago, he says in the greeting, he says, to the chosen and exiled people of God in Asia Minor, to the chosen or to the elect people of God. And this introduction is key because they might be non-Jewish, they might be Gentile, they might be isolated, But Peter is wanting to come and in his language allude to the fact that they're part of something bigger than themselves. You are chosen and exiled. 
he's alluding to the fact that Abraham and Israel, they were chosen and they were exiled. And what he wants to come and do is, through his encouragement, he wants to lean back into the past and begin to encourage them, to remind them that through Jesus they are part of the family of Abraham and from lessons in the past, In Israel's history, he now wants to come and encourage them where they find themselves at now. And so they might be isolated, alone, misunderstood, maybe suffering, definitely persecuted, and isolated where they are, exiled, longing for the promised land of heaven, but he wants to come and remind them of a couple of things. And the truth is, is as we come and we look at where we find ourselves, We too are God's chosen people who are in exile. That for us, we are God's family who right now might be, who are in exile, who might be misunderstood, who might be suffering a little, who might at times be persecuted, and who are looking forward to the promised land of heaven one day. And so what Peter's coming and doing is he wants to come and remind them that through Jesus they're part of this family. He wants to remind us, through Jesus we're part of this family. And by being part of this family, there are some lessons in our family history that we would be well served to be reminded of. And so it comes to verse 13, 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 13, where it says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. He's done the greeting, he's done the introduction, and he now is coming to encourage them by calling them to something more, by reminding them. And he says, prepare yourselves, prepare your minds for action. Prepare your minds for action as we lean into this year we would be well served to prepare ourselves, our minds, for action. I don't know that I'm going to shoot the lights out this morning. I don't know that this is going to be a raw, raw message where, yes, let's go for it and take the hill, as much as this is a sober reminder of who we are, that we might be well geared to come and give ourselves to the purposes and the plans of God in the course of this year. And so he says, prepare your minds. The other translations say, come and gird the loins of your mind. I wish the ESV said that because it's such a rich metaphor. Gird your loins. Have you ever heard this phrase? Well, these guys that were reading this, listening to this all those years ago, would have known immediately what that meant. And so if you're wearing a robe, which would be common, including men in those days, and you wanted to get somewhere quickly, if you needed to get to action, to run or or go somewhere quickly, you'd come and lift up the hem of your robe. And then you'd tuck it in like a nappy. And you'd free your legs up so they weren't encumbered. They, They didn't have this loose, flapping material that as you're running, you step on it and trip over yourself. So you'd come and gird your loins so that you're ready for action. And so Peter's coming and he's taking this metaphor and he's saying, gird the loins of your minds. What he's wanting to come and say is that you need to, to the the church back then, and you need to, to you and I today, we need to come and we need to take stock of any loose or wayward thinking 
that we might have. And we need to come and gird it so that it doesn't come and trip us up. Just like my girls and their Princess Elsa, little fancy dress, got this thing hanging out there, gets caught in the axle and gets ripped up and holds them back. <laughs> that we need to come and realize that we are at risk if we're not careful of being tripped up by loose and wayward thinking. And so he comes, he says, any loose and wayward thinking, sort it out so that you are not, verse 14, conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. And so now what Peter is going to do is he's going to come and appeal to Israel's history, to their rich history, to come and pick up on a couple of realities back then that he wants to come and help these people and us today take stock of our thinking and make sure we don't have any wayward flapping thoughts or ideas or beliefs that will come and trip us up. And so the outline for my message this morning and next week's message, there's five parts to it and there's five things we're going to touch on. And what Peter's doing is he wants to remind us that through Jesus, we are the people of the new Passover. We are the people of the new Exodus. Number three, the people of the new covenant. Number four, of the new temple. And number five, of the new priesthood. And so if you will, won't you bow your heads and just pray with me. Lord, as we come and launch into this year, all that it entails, all that you have for us. Lord God, we're, we're not focusing on ESCOM, we're not focusing on the things of this world, we're not being drawn back by them. Though they may at times seem like giants, Lord God, we know you tower over them all and your plans and your purposes are greater than anything that this world could throw at us. And as we venture into this year, Lord God, we want to Avail ourselves to your plans, to your purposes, to what you're doing. And we want your church, this church, New Gen, to come alongside you, to come alongside what you're doing in the world. And we want to partner with you. And God, where there are things within our thinking, where there are beliefs, wayward thoughts, or understandings that we have, we pray that you'd come and help us resist any lazy and lethargic thinking. And we invite you to come and to help guard our minds, to come and guide our thoughts. In the mighty name of Jesus, I pray this. All God's people said, Amen. Amen. And so number one, through Jesus, we are the people of the new Passover. And so, I don't know if you've uh, ever Googled, what is the greatest ransom ever paid? And you know, Google is the authority on all things, and so it must be true. It was, according to Google, a ransom paid for the last Inca emperor. Uh, he's got a name, I can't say it, I'm not going to even bother. Uh, but he was captured in the 1650s, round about then, uh, by the Spanish. Uh, he was kidnapped, held prisoner, and they held him for ransom. And um, eventually, I don't even think it was that long, but uh, they came and paid the ransom, which was uh, a hall full of gold. Uh, and in today's currency value, it was the equivalent of 
25 billion rand that was paid for him, for his release. And so I don't know if you can see the correlation here, but Israel was also held prisoner by Pharaoh. Effectively, God's people were kidnapped into Egypt. And their freedom was ransomed. Not by silver, not by gold, but by blood. And so God came and He judged everyone in Egypt. And when He came and judged them, it was according to blood. And so for those that took the blood of a lamb and put it on the the door of their homes, the angel of the Lord came and passed over. He saw the blood there and effectively said, a life for a life, the life of that lamb comes and is taken in exchange for the life of this family. But where there was no blood over the doors, the angel of the Lord would come and enter in there and take the blood of the firstborn in that house. And so this was a life for a life, and this became known as the Passover in time, where the judgments of the Lord passed over those that were covered in the blood of the Lamb. And so this is Israel's history. This is the Passover, but through Christ Jesus, we are the new Passover. How many of you know and realize and recognize that we are prisoners of sin? We have been kidnapped by sin. And our ransom is not a thousand rand or a billion rand or 25 billion rand, but the price on our lives, the ransom is blood, a life for a life. And so when John the Baptist saw Jesus, he said, Behold the Lamb of God whose blood takes away the sin of the world. Right? This is the fundamental truth of our faith. This is what Peter's coming and reminding them and us of. And so he says in 1 Peter 17, he says, And if you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed. Everyone say, ransomed. Good. That is delicious water. It goes on and it says, that you are ransomed from your futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold. Everyone say, not silver, not gold. Thank you for humoring me. It goes on and it says, but with the precious blood of Christ. Everyone say, the blood of Christ. Good. Like that of the Lamb without blemish or spot. And so when we come and we look at this, we see that you were ransomed, Not by silver or gold, but by the blood of Christ. This is a fundamental truth of our Christian faith. That we cannot be lazy or lethargic with, that we have to tend to. And when we come and we don't pay attention to this, it results in loose and wayward thinking. Which is embodied in us coming and thinking that Jesus is not enough. That I have to come and add to my salvation. I I know for many of us, if not most of us, we know that we can't add to the salvation that we have in Christ. But subtly, and often subconsciously, and even consciously, we come and we add to our salvation. And so we, we come and we begin to behave. Maybe we know in our heads this isn't true, but we begin to behave that that our salvation is incumbent upon Jesus plus reading our Bible, Jesus plus praying, Jesus plus going to church, Jesus plus going to a specific kind of church, Jesus plus being baptized, Jesus plus confirmation, Jesus plus tithing, Jesus plus looking after the poor, 
And if you do this, then you'll be worthy. This is loose and wayward thinking, and it results in legalism and a religious spirit. It results in people coming and either consciously or subconsciously saying, to be saved, you need to go to church. To be saved, really, you should be praying. To be saved, you should be baptized. To be saved, you should be doing X, Y, and Z. And our true identity, when we come and we take stock of this, our true identity says that we're saved by faith alone in Christ alone. Romans 6 verse 10. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. And so Jesus is enough. He's enough. He's enough for all people. For all sin, for all time. There's nothing more to do. There's nothing more to add. It is finished. This is what he said on the cross when he died. Just before he breathed his last breath, he said, It is finished. The work of salvation. The work of the cross. It is finished. You cannot come and add anything else to this. And so, why would we come and begin to add things to our salvation when Christ has done it all? And when we come and we take stock of this and we begin to realize that Christ is enough, that we save by faith alone in Christ alone, what does it change? It changes the motivation that we live by. And so Kaz would know and one or two people would know that I enjoy things being a certain way. And so I like a neat office. Right now, my office is behind that wall there. It looks like a bomb's hit it. And before I can go and kind of start my new week and a new project or a new message, I've got to go in and I've got to tidy it up. I've got to sort it out before I can work. Before I come home, Kaz knows I I like to come home to a neat house that's not dirty or dusty or messy or in in a shamble. I like it. It's my refuge. It's my safe place. It's my sanctuary. When I come home, that's what I'm looking for. Uh, and so, uh, and so, uh, when we come and we, oh, thanks, man. That's very kind of you. What's the difference? I'm not going to say who, but someone put salt in my water. I think it's from that side of the room. <laughs> Guys, you wouldn't know the attacks I come under. <laughs> and so I, um, I like to come into a, a, a neat and tidy house. And so, and so Kaz is generally home before me and she's generally... You know, there when I get home, and she would perhaps come and make sure the house is neat and tidy, and she would do this maybe from a place of worrying and being fearful that I'm going to come home and get angry. And when I get angry, people die. <laughs> or she could come and do it because I get grumpy and moody, and she, she would rather come and make sure the house is tidy than deal with the grumpy stuff. Or it might be that she knows that it means a lot to me and that it blesses me. And because she loves me, she'll make sure that that's something of a standard that we try and strive for. 
And so this is, this is the motivation here. Why would Kaz come and do this? Well, it would be because of she loves me and she wants to bless me. And so when we come and we consider the Passover and the blood on the door and the angel of the Lord coming, the angel of the Lord didn't stop at the house and, and say, okay, there's blood there, let's tick that off. Oh, the house is nice and neat and tidy, let's tick that off. Uh, and they also follow and have obeyed the Ten Commandments, let's tick that off. Well done, we can pass over from you. No, it was, okay, is there blood here? Yes, check, done. Done. Nothing more. So why do we live like we have to come and add to the salvation that we have in Christ Jesus? It's not based on us or what we've done. It's based on Christ and what He has done. And when we have this revelation that there's nothing we can add to salvation, that Jesus has done it all, that we're saved by faith alone in Christ alone, it means any legalism and religious spirit is gone. And we begin to live in the spacious place of God's provision of His mercy and grace. And instead of coming and working so that we can find some rest, we begin to work from a place of rest, resting in our salvation. Some of us just need to relax and take it easy and realize that God has done the work. We don't have to take ourselves so seriously. And so we need to come and we need to gird our minds. You cannot add anything to your salvation. Christ has done it all. And that should result in you saying, oh my goodness. You know, we come and we look at the things that we ransomed for in life. Your life was ransomed through Christ. What does it do inside of you? It should come and beg enormous gratitude from you. That you don't want to come and do these things because you're scared of Him. Or because you don't want them to be grumpy and cause you to suffer, but because, my goodness, I love Jesus and I want to bless Him. And so I'm going to do it because it blesses Him, not because I want something from Him. Number two, through Jesus we are the people of the new exodus. And so, last year Kaz met a lady who uh, she ended up doing some work with, and this lady... Uh, traveled around the world living in Airbnbs. And so Kaz got chatting to her and was like, oh, that's interesting. You know, how does it work? Uh, where's your base? And the lady was like, no, I don't have a base. Well, where's your home? No, I don't have a home. Well, where do you live? Um, from one Airbnb to another. Well, you know, where do you keep your stuff? Um, I don't have stuff. And all her worldly possessions, and this is someone who's wealthy, all her worldly possessions are what she can carry around with her in her bags. It was a bizarre thing to think of and to come across. That basically this lady was something of a pilgrim, moving from one place to another that didn't have a home. And when we come and we think of Israel, when they entered into the Exodus, they became exiles that were wandering in the desert without a home, longing for the promised land one day. And so this is what Peter is now, as we move on, he's now reminding his people of, his audience back then and us right now, that they are exiles and that we are exiles. That through Jesus, we are the people of the new exodus. And so we come and we read it in verse 17 where it says, And if you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Of your exile. And so he's saying to them, you are exiles. And he's saying to us, 
you, I, all of us, we are exiles. This world is not your home. Stop living like it is. In this life, you're a pilgrim passing through this world to your true home, the promised land, the promised land of heaven. And so what loose and wayward thinking results in when we forget that we're exiles in this world, destined for another home, our home in heaven, it comes and it results in us coming and thinking that earth is our home. And it results in us building our lives around our time here on earth and the things of this world. How many of us are guilty of that? And so this kind of thinking, this loose and wayward thinking that Peter's calling out results in very superficial and selfish living. I I can't help the poor. poor. It's going to cost me. I'm having fun. I can't get to that. I'm really comfortable. I can't help the poor. I I can't get to church. We've got a family lunch. I I can't volunteer and help and serve. I'm going to the beach. I'm going to be cycling. I'm going to be running. And uh, I can't get there for it. And so when we come in and pack this, if you are a Christ follower, if you are a disciple of Jesus, then you are not a citizen of earth. You are a citizen of heaven, passing through earth and this life to the homeland of heaven, to your place with God. And so Paul, the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3.20 says, but our citizenship is in heaven. This is not our home. We do not belong here. We live in this life, in this moment, in this time, in this space, but we're pilgrims passing on through to our home in heaven with our Father in heaven. <clears throat> and so what does this change for us? If we come and we, we gird these, these, these thoughts and this kind of thinking, it changes the way we live today. And so if you were going to die in seven days' time, you knew you were going to die in seven days' time, you knew it, what would you do? Would you carry on the same, or would you change a couple of things? You'd come and change a couple of things. You'd change the way you think, the way you spend your time, the way you spend your money, the people that you hang out with, the values that you live by, the things that you do. You'd come and change all of these things. And when we have a revelation that our home is with God, that we're passing through this life, and everything in this life is but a preparation for there, we begin to live differently. We begin to use our time differently. We begin to use our resources differently. We begin to see life differently. We begin to spend our time and the, the, the people that we hang out with differently. That's what begins to happen when we gird this kind of loose thinking. When we come and we realize that this earth isn't our home, that we're passing through, and we come and we tuck that in, you know what, you begin to live a bit lighter. You come and you're ready for action. God says, go here. I can go. I've got my two bags and this is all I need. I need you to do this. I can do this. Because I'm, I, I'm not defined and my identity is not rooted in my running. I, I, I can miss a run this morning so that I can come and do this. 
And so, through Jesus, number one, we're people of the new Passover. Number two, we're people of the new Exodus. And number three, through Jesus, we are the people of the new covenant. And so, I know that there are people in this room that have entered into agreements and partnerships with others that have ended badly, where they've lost money. Some of you are even thinking of that right now, of, of situations that you entered into where you came off second best because of a broken promise or a broken word. Uh, you have a broken relationship or you have lost finances along the way. And just as a sidebar to that, if that has happened, you need to please make sure that you're not harboring bitterness to that person or that situation because that can come uh, and cause you to be held back because you're defining yourself against what's happened and what these people did to you. But that's not the point. The point I want to come and make is that, is that when we come in, we talk about new covenant. When we talk about a covenant, a covenant is a, is a partnership, an agreement between two parties that come and work together to agree to come and do things together. And so in the Old Testament, in the story of Israel, we've got a couple of covenants that God makes with Noah and Abraham and David and with Israel. It says, if you come and do what I ask you to do, if you obey my commands, then I will be with you. I'll be your God. And so there's a covenantal agreement that's been worked through here. And in each one of those situations, that covenant is broken. Never by God, but every time by man, because they can't hold up their end of the bargain. Because they break the promises. God will not break His word. He's faithful to His promises. There's no lie or shadow that lives in God. He cannot deceive. He will not manipulate. He will not undermine. He is holy through and through. And so when he makes the covenant, he's good for it. And so when we come and we look for a covenant that will last, an everlasting covenant, what do we have to find as the the two partners that come to that? Well, we need God to come and be the one part of it, and we need God to come and make a partnership or a covenant with himself. Because he's the only one that that won't come and break the covenant, the agreement. And so when we come and we look at salvation, when we come and we look at the Passover and what Christ has done for us, we see that here we have a covenantal agreement between God and God. God the Father and God the Son. You see, Jesus is as much God as God is God. It's one of the great mysteries of the Christian faith, the Trinity, that each one, God the Father, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit are equal that they're as much God as each other is. And so here we have God, the Father, coming and working through a covenantal agreement with God, the Son, Jesus, that concerns our salvation. And so this is what Peter is reminding his audience of, is that they're part of a new covenant, not worked through God and man, but God and the Son of Man, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, 1 Peter 1.22 says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again. Everyone say, born again. Thank you. Not of a perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. Everyone say, Word of God. 
you have been born again by the word of God, not through, not through a perishable seed, not through our deeds and our efforts, but through the word of God. And you would know, many of you from John, the book of John, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The word is Jesus. And so we're born again through Jesus. And so that word is Jesus. And that word is the word of the covenant that will never fail and will never let us down. And so when we come and we consider the loose and wayward thinking that we might have in the face and in the context of this divine and priceless truth, it would be that my place with God, my relationship with God, my home in heaven, my reconciliation, my salvation hangs in the balance. That I could lose my salvation. And it results in us saying, I I think I've lost my salvation or I'm not actually sure whether or not I'm saved. And I wonder how many people here have thought that in the last month or the last year. I wonder if I'm really saved. And this kind of thinking, this wayward thinking results in doubt and double-mindedness and questioning and insecurity and a sense of feeling unworthy. And so as we come and we look at this, we've got to realize that our identity as believers is in Christ. The Bible talks about We don't have salvation from Jesus. We have salvation in Jesus. Through some kind of divine mystery, we're knitted into Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone and the new is here. And so what's my point? My point is, is that In the context of through Jesus, we are people of the new Passover. We are at risk of coming to, of coming and adding to our salvation. Jesus plus. In the context of this one, where we come in and say we are through Jesus the people of the new covenant, we're at risk of coming and taking away from the work of Jesus. And coming and saying he's, he's not enough in the sense that, that we could lose our salvation. So in the context of all the old covenants that were broken, they were broken by men, by what they did. Now what we've got to realize is that our salvation is worked through Christ and what he did. And he said, it is finished and it is done. And so he has been and he will remain faithful to the work that he has achieved. Which means that Just as you're not saved by anything that you can do, you also can't lose your salvation by anything that you might do. And so your salvation is secure because it's based on Christ, His work, and His faithful word. And He's never going to turn around. He's never going to fail. He's never going to break His promise. He's never going to change. Because He's not a man as we are. He's the Son of God. He's the divine man sent from heaven above. And so when I come and, and one day when my kids are older and Tandia goes to America and she studies overseas and she's studying to be uh, a rocket scientist. Is it a rocket or nuclear scientist? 
A nuclear scientist, uh, she's there and, you know, next thing you know, she does something that she shouldn't. And she's very naughty. And in that moment, how do I respond as a parent? Do I come and say, oh, you know what, I'm cutting my losses, you're done. This isn't your home anymore and I don't ever want to see you again. No, as a parent, I'm going to respond and say, sure, listen, I'm a little disappointed. We'll talk about this when you come back home and then we can work it through. She's still got a place in my home. She still has a home and she will still come home. It doesn't matter what she's done. It doesn't matter if she's been naughty. It doesn't matter if we come and we mess up. It doesn't matter if we're filthy and rotten and depraved. Just as your good deeds can't save you, when you're in Christ, your bad deeds, whether you're cheating or lying or stealing or murdering, cannot come and undermine the work of Christ. It cannot take away from the work of Christ. He is faithful. It is done. And we are absolutely secured in Him. As a sidebar, let me just come and say, coming back to the beginning, we might say, oh, well, that's lovely. My salvation is secure. Let me go and do this, and let me go and do that, and let me mess around with this guy. What is the motivation of that? Is it because you love Jesus that you're doing that, or is it because you love yourself? And the fruits of that might be, actually, you're not actually saved, and you don't actually love Jesus. Maybe that's the point we need to come to. But really, when it comes to Christ and the work of Christ, He is absolutely faithful. And so how does this change the way we behave? How does this change the way we live? Well, when we come to the fact that nothing we can do can rob us of our salvation, it removes lingering feelings of insecurity and doubt and feelings of unworthiness, and when we have a proper revelation of this, we begin to come and love Jesus. And we're saying, man, even though I've done this, you still love me. And you still care for me. And it comes and reinforces this thing of, because I love Jesus, I want to come and bless him by living in this way. Not because I need to get something from him. And so as a result, we begin to live more settled, more accepted, focus our energy on being holy rather than getting saved. Focus our energy on the works, the good works that God calls us to. And so I wonder if the musos can come up as I bring this preaching to park and, and just come and say as we venture forward into this year ahead, as we come and we look at the things that God would have for us as a church, as a people, as individuals, I think we would be well served to come and take stock of these basic things that really shouldn't be a distraction, that shouldn't come and tangle themselves up in our walk of faith and the things God's calling us to. We've got an opportunity here, at the inception of this year, off the back of what God has been doing, to just come and do a bit of due diligence on some of these things. I wonder what God's been speaking to you about. I wonder what some of your thoughts are that you need to come and just recognize these are a bit wayward kind of tuck them in and line them up with God's truth around what He's done and who He says you are. And so we're going to take a moment now, just a minute, minute or two, just before the musos lead us in a final song. And I just want you to do business with God. What is God saying to you? What do you need to come and just tuck in? What wayward thoughts 
Maybe there's some wayward thoughts that aren't even covered in what I've mentioned this morning that God's got his finger on. And this morning, he wants you to come and just do business on these things. I really feel like the Spirit of God is, is coming and he's highlighting things to each one of us. He's touching on things, speaking to us. The beautiful thing is he, he doesn't just come and point a finger to condemn, but he comes and points a finger so that he can move to, come closer to, to empower his grace <clears throat> and bring redemption in those things. Just as we transition into a final song, can you make room for the Spirit of God to come and do that now? <clears throat>